This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Brad Gray. So he's a national speaker, a biblical land study tour leader, Bible expert, and author. He's also the president and CEO of Walking the Text, which is an organization that teaches people how to read the Bible with clarity and confidence. And he actually does that by leading these Bible study experiences in Israel and in Turkey. And he's also the executive producer of a forthcoming TV show called The Sacred Thread, which will take the audience through the ancient biblical world with exploration of famous locations, interviews with with experts and all this never before seen, you know, cinematic visuals of maps and historical figures and painted scenes and all that. But the the interesting thing about this conversation today is all that stuff is cool. Like leading these study tours is cool and doing this TV show is cool. And guys, we spent a lot of time talking about the study tours and talking about the sacred thread, but the whole thing that is the thread, if you will, that goes through this entire interview, but also all of Brad Gray's career is this insatiable appetite for the Bible. Because if we're going to be honest, and we talked about this in the podcast itself, and I've talked about it uh, before on my show, is that at the end of the day, a lot of people don't read the Bible because they're nervous. They don't know how to. They think they're going to do it poorly or wrongly. Uh, They think you can't just read the Bible. You have to study it. And in order to study it, you need to have, you know, the amount of commentaries and you need to know uh, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and all these different things. And so what they end up doing is they do nothing. They don't open up an app on their phone. They don't open up a website. They don't pull the, you know, the Bible off the shelf. They just don't do any of that. And so what Brad has really done with the majority of his career is try to make sure that that's not the case for people. And for some people, the thing that really propels them into a life of Bible reading and learning through God's word starts with these trips that he takes these people on. But he doesn't just do the trips and like, all right, well, we spent a couple of weeks in Israel. Now go home and live the rest of your life. It's like, no, no, no. Here are some resources for you to use that will kind of keep this momentum going in this direction. And so we talk about all those different things. We talk about these, uh, these things he has coming up. And then at the end, we get into like a little 10 minute conversation about masculinity inside the church. And he and I, I get the sense we come from uh, some different places theologically. And we certainly come from different places in terms of how we were raised, but how we can all coalesce that into how should we approach masculinity and manhood within the church? So I really enjoyed my time today with Brad. So without further ado, let's get into it. Brad Gray, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, it's great to be on. Thank you. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, but we need to kind of find a a soft place to land here from the beginning. You're a Christian, so shock of all shocks, I invited a Christian to come on a Christian podcast. But I guess for you, without getting into all the gory details, because you know all the other things we need to talk about today, how did you become a Christian? But then specifically, why did you decide to make Christianity the center point of your professional life as well? Because obviously we know those two things don't have to be connected. Right, exactly. You know, I was one of those very fortunate kids to grow up in a Christian home. My parents were actually really young Christians at the time. And so um, faith for me was always part of my upbringing. But knowing that my parents were very young Christians, there were a lot of things that they were figuring out as well. And it wasn't really until college for me that faith actually became real and became my own. I mean, I'd always been, you know, a follower of Jesus. I never remember having one of those, you know, conversion times, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, moments, but college woke me up to the reality that 
either it's it's either true or it's not. It's either going to influence your life or it's not going to be part of your life. And for me, I started to have just some really transformational experiences around the Bible, about who God was, about who Jesus was, and faith just became very, very real to me. And even as I was going through college, I mean, I got a business degree. I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I actually graduated with a business degree, did several years of sports business, and was doing all kinds of really fun projects. I mean, everything from helping daycare kids better understand how their body works and doing exercise programs all the way up to working with our U.S. Special Forces and helping them stay healthy and and do what they need to do well. And in the midst of all of this, uh, God just woke me up to the reality that I had a deeper passion, which was to understand the Bible and then to teach it and to be able to help other people grow in their faith, grow in their understanding of the Bible, of who God is, of why following Jesus is the greatest adventure in life. And it was through that change in my own journey going to seminary, then moving to the Middle East, living there, experiencing, you know, firsthand all the biblical stories that God ushered me onto a path of, you know, what has become my my life is is teaching people, you know, the biblical text. Okay, so a lot there that we'll get into, but I want to go back to Brad in college. And so you're at college, you're in college, uh, you're you're pursuing a business degree. Why do you feel like it was that time period where it seemed like you were put onto a truth journey? Because I feel like, and maybe it's different because of the time we're living in now, but I feel like kids that are going to universities right now, everything that these universities are trying to get them to do is to not just question truth. They want to question even the the idea of truth, which is a very postmodern idea that, hey, there's not really truth. Everything's relative. Everything's through your lived experience lens. But for you, I guess when you were in college, like, why do you think that time was so specific to you? Because that's typically the time when people are screwing off and, you know, uh, making a bunch of bad decisions and all those types of things. And that just didn't really seem to go that way for you. Yeah. For me, when I went to college, I went first and foremost for basketball and then second for academics, you know, truthfully. And so I ended up playing small college basketball for a phenomenal university in West Michigan at Cornerstone University. And so it ended up being a Christian school. I wasn't looking to go to a Christian school, Mm -hmm. but it, it was a Christian school. And in order to play basketball and, you know, you had to stay on the straight and narrow. But for me, you know, when I was in high school, I had a really fantastic um, Bible teacher named Mark Eckel, who the class was called Christian Life and World Studies. So it was a class that really taught us what we believe, why we believe, and what other people believe. So I had a really good foundation for why other people believed what they believed. And when I say that really in, in college, my faith became really real is that, I mean, I was a follower of Jesus. I really loved Bible classes when I was even going through high school. But I had an experience in college with a church that got started my freshman year, Mars Hill, not Mark Driscoll, Rob mm-hmm. Bell. And and so some people may know that that journey and trajectory. But when I started to attend Mars Hill, my freshman year of college, and, and Mars started a few months after my freshman year started, it gave me an understanding of what I've I had kind of like my first really amazing vision of how the church could be a compelling force for good in the world. And so just seeing what Mars was doing, seeing how Rob was 
was was changing the way people were experiencing church the idea of going to church the idea of faith just took on a whole new sense of of meaning of application of uh significance of impact and and all of a sudden it just woke me up to oh there's there's not only something going on here, but they're starting to really stir within me. And I think God used that experience to start helping me to understand even my own path that I was going to be going down, even though I was several years away from essentially God inviting me onto that path. So we may get way off into the weeds here, but that's okay. As you're describing that, um, I'll bring it all back around. So just follow me for a second. Um, obviously everyone knows about Ravi Zacharias and some of the horrific things that he did while he was alive that weren't found out until after his death, unfortunately. And you have these other people that have kind of deconstructed. You have, you know, Hillsong basically falling right. down and yeah. you have, uh, Houston and, uh, what the other guy, the super cool dude, bro guy from New York, uh, Carl Lentz, like they, they all fell. And the problem is, is after that, after those falls, people that were, you know, found Jesus at an RZIM event or at a Hillsong conference or something like that. They began like questioning their faith and questioning, is this legitimate? Like, was I just emotionally manipulated or did I actually feel the move of the Holy Spirit? So I say that to say, saying Rob Bell is, is like saying a cuss word to a lot of people in our audience because of some of the things that he's done and said after his sure. Mars Hill days, going like full universalist, not really down with the Trinity anymore. He, he's more of kind of this new agey, hey, I'm going to go hang out with Oprah and not really talk about Jesus kind of a thing. What are kind of your thoughts on that? Because here you are, you seem to have had a legitimate uh, move of the Holy Spirit in your life through a ministry by a man who has kind of led some people down the wrong path and, and certainly led them away from Jesus in the years since then. Does that make sense? Oh, no, it's, it's, I've, I've had this conversation many times, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and here's the thing is, is that God, God uses all kinds of people in our lives to help us along in the journey of faith and in the journey of life. And just because, you know, somebody had, you know, a, a really moving experience with, you know, Ravi Zacharias and then found out later on, oh my goodness, there was this other world going on on the backside. There was so much of what Ravi said that was absolutely 100% true. Right. You know, and so one of the things that, you know, Part of maturity is being able to <clears throat> sift the wheat from the chaff, from being able to figure out, you know, what is truth from error and recognizing that someone is not always 100% right and somebody's not always 100% wrong and not throwing the baby, you know, out with the bathwater. And so for, for me in my journey, there were so many things about that time in my life that helped me to think through faith and to question a lot of things, not to the point to deconstruct my faith, but to actually reconstruct it in a way that was way stronger than it was before. And there are definitely issues um, and you know theological positions that I'm in a different place today than where Rob is. But looking back on my journey, Rob was someone who taught me so much about the communication process taught me about boundaries, talking about, you know, how family comes first and how not to allow ministry to take out your life. Because for so many people who become pastors, and I served as a pastor for over a decade, ministry is really difficult. And if you haven't learned boundaries, I mean, there are none. You get you get ran over. 
And so just recognizing it's like, you know, probably you're the same way. I mean, you're you're a voracious reader. There's lots of things you read. You probably look at some stuff and go, oh, I totally buy that in the book. But then there's other things you're like, that's crap. You know, I, where what are they doing there? And and that's the thing for me is I feel like the people who have helped me the most are the ones who have challenged me the most to be a critical thinker and to be able to sift. There's there's nobody I agree with 100%. And so I feel like, you know, whether it's Robbie, whether it's Rob, whether it's, you know, other people that, you know, people have had great experiences with and then found out maybe there was something else going on there is just recognizing there's truth and there are things that were right and how can you hold on to those and let those other things go you know, and, and to be mature enough to make that discernment process. Well, and Brad, before you even said, it, I literally wrote down throwing out the baby with the bathwater because, uh, you know, one thing that I did after it was found out that Robbie Zacharias was a sexual deviant, uh, we have a book list on our website, the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. I removed one of his books from that list, but I'm always looking for books to remove from that list to add different books. And it's, it's a living list, but I didn't think that there was enough in that book to warrant it staying there and warrant the questions that you would get thereafter. Sure. But like, you know, something simple that I've used with a lot of non-Christians before is like every word worldview needs to answer four questions origin, meaning, morality, destiny. I learned that from Ravi Zacharias, origin. Where do we all come from? Meaning, right. why are we all here? Morality, how do we tell the difference between good and evil? Destiny, where do you go when you die? So am I just supposed to delete that in my brain, that this way to kind of bring people closer to the Father or to attack some of their presuppositions in their, in their, I guess, worldview? Like, no, I certainly wouldn't do that. And I think it was, so here's the other cuss word for some people, not for us, but Mark Driscoll. I think that's where I learned this idea and concept of accept, reject, redeem. So as you're reading a book or listening to a podcast or watching a documentary, there are things that you just outright accept because they're true. There are things that you have to reject because they're nonsense. And then there are things that can be redeemed. So I think of someone like a Jordan Peterson. This is somebody that is a, a, a big time figure in my life. And a lot of people that listen to this podcast, there are things that he says that are abiblical. They just don't align with the truths of scripture, but they can be redeemed because the the morality that's undergirding what he's saying is right and true. He just hasn't drawn all the correct dots yet. And so I think that's something that, that we should all really think about is, yes, like if you were saved at a RZIM event, you're saved. Like just because Robbie's a horrifically terrible person, that doesn't mean that you lost your salvation. And so um, g- going back to something that you said earlier, Brad, you said you kind of grew this appetite, if you will, for the scriptures. And even after you had kind of given, given yourself over to that appetite, you still didn't know that was going to be like a center point for, for your career, but just walk me through that process because, and I mentioned this to you off air. I think there are a lot of guys out there in my audience, if I'm being honest, that are very similar to me where they get excited at the idea of reading the Bible, but then something stops them. Because it's like, well, you, you can't just read the Bible. Like, you have to study it. And, I mean, who has time to study, right? Like, I mean, we got we got dogs that need to be walked. We got kids that need to be picked up from baseball practice. We got to go on a date night with our wife or our marriage is going to fall apart. Like, there's all these things to do. And if you look at your calendar, you're like, I don't see time for study. And so what we do is we don't just not study. We don't read. So walk me through how that, how that worked for you, how you got this appetite and how you walked into it. Yeah, you know, it was... Part of the the appetite is, you know, when a lot of people talk about, I always felt drawn, you know, to this thing. In fact, I just was walking through the living room and my wife had, you know, one of the, um, you know, morning shows on and the guy that is the actor opposite uh, in the new Creed film that's going to be coming out was just talking about, 
you know, I always felt drawn to acting, even in the drought times of my life, like I was drawn to acting. And we've all had these moments where we felt drawn to something. For me, it happened to be the scriptures and not because, oh, because, you know, I'm more spiritual than other people. It was, I am a teacher at heart. Everything that I do in my life is in some way, shape or form teaching coaching, you know, whether it is now the Bible as well as communication, you know, I coach my kids' basketball teams. I mean, there's always been this teacher inside of me and I was drawn to the scriptures in a way that I don't really know how other to explain other than I would wake up in the morning going, man, there's a lot going on in the Bible that I don't understand and I want to understand it. In fact, I went to seminary not to become a pastor. I mean, I I was like, can I go to seminary and not be a pastor? I I never wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to be a teacher. And while I was in seminary, another story, God really formed me into a a pastor's heart. And I ended up becoming a teaching pastor, which was a really great blend of, I got to teach for much of what I did, but really get to walk alongside people. But I just had a hunger to understand what was going on. And, And part of what that was is that when I was at Mars Hill, when I was in college, there were a lot of guest teachers that came to Mars Hill. And one of them was a guy by the name of Ray Vanderlaan. And Ray Vanderlaan had led over 200 you know, hiking trips to the Middle East. And I got connected to Ray and started to learn all of these things going on in the Bible that the writers just ex- you know, expected their audience to know because they they didn't write going, oh my goodness, you know, Kyle and Brad are going to be on a podcast 2,000 years from now and they're going to be talking about my work. You know, so they just left so much out. And Ray was the first person that really started to help me to see that there was a world going on behind the Bible that if we can tap into that, we not only better understand the Bible, but we can communicate it in a way that's more helpful for people to want to get engaged in the Bible. And so after seminary for me, my wife and I, we had our our eight-month-old, our oldest at the time, we moved to Israel, studied in Jerusalem, studied there for a year, gave me uh, an education around the context related to the Bible. And it was from that seeing how the geography factors into the Bible and how cultural backgrounds and all of these different things helped me to better understand the Bible. And then I came back as a teaching pastor with the mindset of how do I help other people want to engage the Bible more? You know, as you mentioned, people struggle with time. People also struggle with what in the world am I reading? You know, we're two to 4,000 years removed from space and time. And there's so many things in the Bible that are so different than our Western culture that if you try to see the Bible first and foremost through lenses from Western culture, you're going to get stuck and go, I don't get what's going on. And out of that passion for me, the trajectory that I've been on is, is how can I come alongside of people and help them understand more about what's going on in the Bible so that they're going to want to engage it, read it, and understand it more in order to live it out in their lives. And so what that seems to have led you to, you know, that appetite 
connecting with people that are doing these Middle Eastern trips, living in the Middle East yourself, is what you're doing today because you're the president and CEO of Walking the Text. And so give us an idea as to kind of what that is even, because if you're not familiar with that, you need to at least tell us what that is. And then I guess why you started to begin with. Yes. Yeah. So I started, I started leading study trips, two week study trips to Israel and Turkey back in 2010. So this has been something that I've been doing for a number of years. And as I was doing that, I was also a teaching pastor. And um, about six years ago, my wife and I had this really crazy two week time period where it became abundantly clear that God was saying, I I want you to resign and moved to Nashville. And I was the teaching pastor for a very large church in West Michigan, loved my role, loved the the team that I was working with. And when we moved down here, we had no idea why we were here. It was crystal clear that we needed to go. It was muddy as all get out as to why we were supposed to be here. And it took nearly a year before really things started to crystallize. And they happened on a couple of different fronts. But the big front is what is now known as Walking the Text. So prior to that, walkingthetext.com was just a place where people could go to sign up for the study trips. But what began to happen is after moving down here, it was uh, became clear that I wanted to be able to create a host of resources completely free for people to be able to experience and engage the Bible in its original context and, and basic stuff, just what's the history? You know, if I said today, you know, hey, in the days of, of 9-11 or in the days of COVID-19 or in the days of ISIS, like I don't have to say anything else. Everybody gets this. And the biblical writers are doing that as well. In the days of Caesar Augustus, in the days of Emperor Tiberius, there's a whole host of assumptions that come around those phrases. And what I wanted to do is to figure out, okay, knowing that people struggle to read their Bible due to time, people struggle to read their Bible due to, ah, it's just really difficult to understand. And so often people get frustrated and just end up disengaging because they're trying to understand what they're trying to read, you know, Mm. is to figure out what are some of the most helpful ways that we can reach people with resources to help them to understand the original context around the Bible. And so we did a host of of, of things, three major things that we did. One was we continued um, to do the study trips and I've I've now brought on another study trip leader. So we've got a great partnership um, with a, a tour company in Michigan And so we still lead these two-week biblical study trips. A second thing that we did was we started a three-day conference. So for people who had gone to the Middle East on a trip or couldn't ever get to the Middle East on a trip, there was a three-day crash course experience that people could come to in order to get that learning and education. And every year we just choose a different subject matter. And so we launched that in 2017. And then the biggest way that people have engaged with walking the text is through the teaching series. And these are just 15 to 20 minute TED talk length teachings that we filmed in front of a really nice, you know, high def television screen where we can show drone footage. We can show images, artists, renderings and illustrations. Uh, We can show people, you know, some original language, just basic words to be able to understand what's going on. And we just released, um, you know, our 165th and we're almost up to 170 episodes. Then we also strip the audio and use that as a podcast. And those teachings are available 
on our website at walkingthetext.com, on our YouTube channel. And everything that we create on our website is entirely free. So we have discussion questions that go along with you know each teaching. So people can do that for their own individual study, small group study, um, you know, prison ministries using this, you know, schools mm-hmm. use this. It's it's being used in over a hundred countries. And we're entirely a crowdfunded nonprofit organization that just creates all of these resources for people to be able to engage the Bible and to do it, you know, through visual media that is engaging, that is high, high quality. I mean, it's very, very high produced. We want people to have a 15, 20 minute experience where they learn things they, they, they didn't know. They learn some stu- some tools and strategies so that when they go and read the Bible, it's like, oh, I learned that, you know, on in the teaching series that's got to be what's going on here. And so it allows people to engage the Bible with somebody guiding them. But my goal isn't just to help make you smarter. I want you to to live a life that is more fulfilling. And so we're always giving practical steps. Here's how you can walk this out in your own life. And as you are studying the scripture on your own time, be looking for these things. So we try to tackle that on a number of different fronts. Well, so I appreciate all that detail because it gives us a very in-depth look as to kind of what it, what all you're doing, kind of your whole panoply of, of offerings. But let's look at the study trips specifically. So when you say yeah. study trip, this is what people normally think of. They think of when their 10th grade class went to Washington, D.C. or went to the state capitol for whatever state they live in. And then they go there. They have to listen to some boring people talk about a subject matter that they certainly do not care about. But it's a day out of school. And so they're not having to sit there and do geometry. They're there watching a state senator talk about how they're really important. And so yeah. A lot of people don't, in this, even as adults, adults don't really go on study trips, right? That's not really something that, that people do. So I guess sell us on the idea of like, okay, this is a study trip in Israel and Turkey and, you know, Israel when it's not being rocketed in Turkey when there's not earthquakes, but like, you know, what specifically are you doing? What are these adults doing on the trip? What preparation do they have to do beforehand? What stuff do they have to do after? Give us the whole idea. Yeah. Well, especially for your audience, they're really going to like this. Ours are very physically demanding trips, mm-hmm. so they're not a bus tour. You know, um, we, we don't jump on a bus and go from site to site. And bus tours are great. I mean, they've got their own reason. They've got their own purpose. What I'm trying to do is give my participants an experience with the biblical story. And so we hike to these sites. Um, you know, we wake up early in the morning. We maximize the time that we are there. And the point isn't, that they're supposed to be, oh, physically, you know, oriented, or we're going to be hiking a lot. It's this story happened on that mountain, and we're going to get to the top of that mountain so that you never forget this story that you've read all of your life and you have no idea where this thing took place. And so we do a very unique approach, which is people don't get an itinerary. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how long it's going to take to get there. They're invited to enjoy the journey, you know, and that's one of the the staples is that in the first century world, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus would not have woken up and said, you know, hey, fellas, this is what we're going to go do today. Here's the itinerary for the day. It's come follow me. Let's go have an experience. And there were certain things that Jesus wanted to do. There were other things that all of a sudden somebody in the crowd asks a question and we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, we don't get the parable of Good Samaritan if an expert in the law isn't asking Jesus all these questions. And so we build an experience around 
seeing the entire land of Israel, going through all of these stories that people have read their entire life and now they get to see it. You know, at the end of the fourth century AD, St. Jerome said that the land is the fifth gospel. You know, he's famously quoted saying that when you walk the land, when you see these places, your faith comes alive in ways because you're like, oh man, this, this actually happened. Like this is logically, this makes sense. This is the location, the geography, seeing the ruins, going to these places. And so when I say a study trip, it's, we get after it. I mean, we are, we are in the word. We are allowing God's word to, to govern our experience. You know, we're up at six o'clock in the morning. We're back six o'clock at night. You know, we're maximizing every single minute that we have. And for me, it is a training trip where all throughout the trip, as we're engaging these stories, as we're hiking these sites, as we're having dialogue and discussion and questions and challenges, I'm also throughout the trip giving an entire toolkit for how to go back and engage the Bible differently, not only because of the experiences that you've had, but what you have learned that is going to help you read the Bible differently the rest of your life. And so, yeah, so that's what I mean by a study trip is it's, I mean, we, there are sites we'll drive by and we'll come back six days later because the group isn't ready to engage the content at that site because the entire trip has been built like a story and chapters have to come in a certain order mm. in order for people to get the entirety of the story. So very intentionally put together. That's what I mean by a study trip. People can show up on the trip. Here's the only thing I'm asking them to do to prepare. The big thing is, is be in good shape, you know, cause when yeah. you get really tired, the first thing that goes is your mind, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to hike. It's usually between seven to nine miles of hiking and, you know, we say this in the land of Israel as well as Turkey, but definitely in Israel. The only thing flat is the bus. Everything else is up, down, and around. So I always encourage people, get in as good of shape as possible. And then I give a bunch of optional things for them to read. A lot of biblical stuff, but some other books as well, if they want to prepare even more for the trip. But for a lot of people, they get in good shape, they show up, and then the trip becomes a launch pad. It doesn't become the point. It becomes the launch pad. And once people get back, I provide a whole host of resources. Hey, here's where you go from here so that you don't just look back and say, oh, that was a really great trip I went on, you know, once back in the day. Right. It's, that was the trip that catalyzed my faith, that changed my relationship with Jesus and gave me the strategies and tools that I need to engage the Bible in a way that I want to get into it on a daily basis rather than feeling like I have to. Well, Brad, you're, you're echoing something I talk about a lot, which is just being in shape because I'll have people throw at me. I, I think it was Paul. It was definitely Paul. I think it was in Galatians where he talked about, you know, basically, uh, physical training is of some value. And then, you know, so on and so forth. He, he made his point and people will be like, you see, I don't need to work out. Paul even said, so it's like, no, he said it was of some value, but the point was not about that. The point was about seeking after the face of God and, and you know, serving his people. Like that was the actual point. 
we have so many people in modernity that they just, it's an afterthought or they'll use their, right. their, their family as an excuse. I've had people say, Oh yeah, you know, I would work out, but I got a wife and kids. It's like, okay, well you're just deleting years off the end of your life and pretending right. it's virtuous. And you're going to pretend that you're going to take 15 years off of taking care of your body. And then you're just going to snap right back into it. Like that's not really how any of this works, but I do want to talk a little bit more before we get into, I, I definitely want to talk about the launch pad, what happens afterwards. And this may be a little bit of an ethereal question. I think you and I know the answer, what it means for us. But I guess when you're telling people, hey, we're going to walk the land and we're going to like literally show you the places where this stuff happened for a human being, why does that matter? And I know why it would matter to me, but I'm just throwing yeah. the question out there because some people might be like, well, I'm, I'm comfortable sitting in, in my recliner here in Montana. Why do I need to go uh, over to the Middle East? Like, why do I need to do all these things to see that? What is that going to do to the text that the Holy Spirit can't already do for me? So sure. speak, speak to those people because, dude, I want to see it. Like, you know, I remember the first time I went to Washington, D.C., which was here recently, and just seeing the, the U.S. Capitol building was like a cool moment. I remember to this day, the very first time I saw the Colosseum in Rome and I've seen it three times since, but it was like, oh my gosh, like there it is. Like I've seen the pictures, I've read it, but it's like, you've never been inside the Colosseum and thought about what went on there. You've never smelled what it smells like inside of St. Peter's Basilica. You've never looked up at the ceiling and saw the creation of Adam. Like it is different, but some people don't feel that way. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of different things that a trip like this does. Uh, just last week, my wife and I introduced our four kids to Remember the Titans. Mm. You know, so we're we're watching this film, and you know, one of the things that they do is, you know, towards the beginning of the film, Denzel Washington's character as the coach takes them on a two week training camp. You know, and it's like, well, why do you do that? You know, it's like because there are no distractions. You are singularly focused. We are working on football. It is two a days. It is three a days. We are bonding. We are investing in the very thing that's going to allow us to be successful the rest of the year. A trip like this is like that. When you've signed up to go on a two-week trip, you are investing in a singular focus where you're allowing all the other distractions of life to just sit off to the side. You'll pick them back up two weeks later. But when you are immersed in an experience that is singularly focused for an extended period of time, your growth is exponential. I mean, I always say to people, listen, I can do more with you two weeks on a trip than I could have done with you two weeks or two years on the stage as a, as a teaching pastor. That when you stack up these experiences every single day, you're picking up on things faster. You're noticing things differently. Like you are going through a transformational change in your own journey because it's something that you're doing over the course of, you know, a two week time period. There's also a sense too, where we as humans are experiential beings. Like we can watch the game on television, but we'd rather be at that game, you know, unless it's, you know, Lambeau Field and it's 20 below. It's like, now nah, I enjoy my living room, you know, from this, from this vantage point. It's the idea of actually being there, of seeing it, of engaging all of our senses. You know, we can watch something on, on, on a video. We can look at a photo, but it's not like walking it out and being there. And so for people, what it does is it creates space for God to meet them in ways that 
maybe they don't realize God has been trying to meet them back here in the States or wherever they're coming from. Um, it, it allows people to really sit and wrestle and ponder and think and have the space to do that, whether it's on the bus rides back to the hotel at night, sitting in their hotel room or on a hike. I mean, part of the joy and 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 benefit of of hiking is that when you're out in nature, when you are being physical, like your heart starts to open up in ways, your mind opens up in ways. I mean, we all know that some of the best conversations we've ever had with like our best guy friends have probably been after a workout or after we've gone and done something really adventurous. And it's just elicited other parts of who we are and it opens us up. Um, And as I mentioned earlier too, when you walk where Jesus walked, I mean, it's, Jesus lived in Capernaum. I mean, you Mm -hmm. can walk all of Capernaum in about two minutes. I mean, for the archaeological excavation, we're not talking. It's like it happened here. There's the Mm -hmm. Sea of Galilee. This is where David fought Goliath. You know, the valley is very clearly laid out in scripture. And there's one valley that's got that name and it's right there, you know, and you have a chance to see things and to walk it out and allow God to do something in your own heart and in your own mind, in your own soul, that just doing it from a distance doesn't lend itself to the same kind of experience. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. And and again, it goes back to early on in my wife and I's marriage, we didn't buy each other Valentine's gifts or Christmas gifts or birthday gifts. We would put money into a travel fund because it was things that, you know, that was kind of a thing in college. You know, we went on a trip, you know, my junior year and my senior year, we went to, you know, uh, the UK for one of those trips. One of those was in Italy. And it's just like, it, it, excuse me. I think the the one thing that really blew my mind is again, I've already mentioned the the Coliseum and the St. Peter's Basilica, but in Florence you have, um, Michelangelo's David, and, when yeah. you, and how many times have you seen a picture of the David? It's it's shown on television. It's in textbooks, things like that. It's impossibly big. And that's the first thing is when you turn the corner and look to your right and you look down that long hallway and you see it, it's like, oh my goodness, this is impossibly big. But then when you get up close to it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's impossibly detailed. Like I remember right. because I, I think in the David in his left hand, he's got a stone in his left hand. And when you like, when you like crush your hand, like you're holding a stone, you see all those wrinkles that are happening in your palm. That's in the marble of the statue. Yeah. Like it's, it's an astonishing, um, or I don't know if it's marble, but it's an astonishing uh, statue and kind of what you see, but you would never see that if you were just looking at a picture of it in a textbook. And so and that's just Michelangelo. Like, you know, he's a one in a billion guy, but he's not Jesus. He's not the apostle right. Paul. He's not Moses. Right. And so it's just, it's a different thing. So uh, that's just me almost like teeing you up to encourage guys even more to look at trips like this and study trips like this. But again, it's not just about the trip because the trip is church camp, right? So you get all excited at church camp. You want to come home and share Jesus with all your friends. And, and then they're going to invite two friends and they're gonna, all going to invite two friends. And then all of a sudden we have an actual revival. But a lot of people get home, they get back into their normal routine, they get rid of jet lag, they go back to work on Monday, uh, the washer and dryer is not working properly, and then they just kind of lose it. So let's talk about the launch pad that you mentioned where it's like, okay, we're back from our trip now, here yep. are the things that I have for you so that we can keep this momentum going. Yep, yep. So one of the things are the resources that we have at Walking the Text. You know, that's just uh, becomes a library of resources for people to be able to re-engage some of the stories that we did in Israel. There's a lot of stuff that we've created that I've never done on an Israel trip or a Turkey trip that gives people, you know, that, that 
you know, they can, I mean, we've got over 160 episodes, so they can go and, and watch as many as they want. But a lot of people will engage, you know, one a week just as a reminder of, oh, yeah, those are the kinds of ways in which the Bible writers are doing what they're doing. This is going to encourage me as I'm reading my own, you know, as my, I'm reading my own Bible. So there's the resource that we do at Walking the Text. I also send out um, a resource list that just says, hey, as you seek to go deeper, here's all these different subject matters. Here's the best books that I have come across. I mean, I've been collating this list for 15 years now and helping people to go, okay, where are your interests? You know, what is God drawing you into? And and how can I, how can I be a resource to you? You know, I mean, I get trip participants. I mean, I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of trips, but I'll have trip participants reach out to me on a regular basis and going, hey, I'm at this part in my journey. What's next? So it allows me to have a relationship with them. I mean, that's why for my study trips, like I usually cap it at, at 40, you know, which I know mm-hmm. for some people, they would go, wow, that's, that's a lot of people. Well, it's a lot of groups that are big, big names that they'll take 700 people, you know, and they'll have zero relationship with anybody, you know? Yeah. And for me, I want to lead them and guide them and shepherd them. Um, and so there's a lot. And one of the other things that we do, and if, uh, if people are interested at walking the text, because the teaching series is a way in which we continue to kindle that fire on a regular basis. So we release a new episode now every other week, and um, we have there a an ebook called "The Number One Mistake Most Everyone Makes Reading the Bible," and it's we don't read it in context. And because you know, and you and I have talked about this offline, there are a lot of folks that you know don't read their Bible or don't have the time to read the Bible or just frustrating, you know, reading their Bible. And so for me, it was, I would come back from these trips or I would come off stage and I speak, I've spoken at a lot of conferences and events and all that. And people will come up to me and they'll say, Hey, I understand that reading the Bible in context is important. How do I do that? Like, how do I, how do I do that? And again, not rely on you. And so I just wrote a very, um, you know, simple, it's not simplistic, but simple 30 page ebook, um, that people get completely for free when they sign up at walking the text. And that allows us to send them every time a new episode comes out and it's, here's how you read the Bible in its original context. Here are the ways, regardless of where you're at in your journey. If you are just new, if you've never read their Bible before, this applies to you. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for three decades, four decades, this is for you as well. And not only does it provide a framework for experiencing engaging the Bible in context, but it also lists, here are the best resources that you can get your hands on. Whether Some of them are books that you buy. Some of them are websites that are completely free. But this is a starting point for you to be able to grow in your engagement with the biblical story. And so one thing that I'm hearing through a lot of things that you're saying, Brad, is that it's an entry point. And what you want to do is create as many entry points for people as possible. So that, that's kind of like something that I keep in mind whenever I'm asked to speak live and how I prepare my my speeches, if you will, is yeah. I, try to, I try to create as many hooks as possible because I know people are looking at me 100% of the time, but they're hearing about 60% of the words that I'm saying. They're actually listening to probably 10% and they're going to remember like 1% of the things that I'm saying. So I'm just trying to put as many hooks in the water because I don't know if the intro is going to get you. I don't know if this personal story is going to get you. I don't know if it's just a scripture that I read through my face that's going to get you, but I want to get as many ways to get you in as possible. So a Bible study at church, 
may not get a lot of people. The 6 a.m. Saturday morning prayer breakfast once a month and pretending like that's men's ministry may not get people. Um, the, these other things, study trips may not get people. That, that's just a little bit too much. Maybe their their bodies are broken down. They, they can't really do something like that. So yep. you've done something or you're working on something right now, which I don't even know if I was allowed to ask you about this, but I'm going to anyway. I'm breaking all the rules. There's something that you're working on now called the sacred thread. And what this could potentially be is a mass media, mass marketed way of getting people interested in the scripture in context, but also in a way that is not going to violate their uh, their consciences or uh, make them feel stupid. And what I mean by that, I'm, this could take a long time to set this up, but here we go. We, these Christian you know, movies- No, you're doing great, man. This okay. is all, I'm taking you on the road with me. Okay, sounds good. I'll be your hype man. <laughs> but it's like, there are Christian- things out there, whether documentaries or movies that are just atrocious, they're awful. But the thing is, is you're supposed to like it if you're a Christian and you're supposed to support it because it supposedly has a gospel message. So you're supposed to sit through an hour and 30 minutes of crap for the gospel ending and then share it with all your friends and buy their tickets so that they can come to you with the theaters as well. But the thing is, is it's violating one of the, one of the presuppositions about a Christian life is in that you should understand beauty more than anybody else. Because if you understand the gospel and if you've been saved by the blood of the lamb, you should understand beauty more than a Grammy award-winning singer or, you know, an Academy award-winning director or any of those types of things. And so all that to say, the sacred thread, this is a television show that I'll let you tell us about, but I watched the first episode and I was floored by how gorgeous it was, by how it flowed. And I immediately thought someone is going to accidentally click on that on Netflix or on Amazon Prime TV or on Apple Plus or whatever it's going to end up being on. And they're going to be like, wait, what are they saying? Bible? I don't really care about the Bible, but man, this is gorgeous. So I have talked for way too long. That was basically a soliloquy. I think that's the first time I even said that word on the podcast. Brad, save me. Talk to me about the sacred thread. Man, I'm piggybacking you. That was that was very well done. Yeah, no, the sacred thread is a global television series that is in production right now that is going to be both something that is distributed commercially here in the United States as well as internationally to help people experience the Bible uh, in its original context. And as you witnessed, there is a level of, of excellence and quality and beauty that we have sought after in order to provide something that people will be engaged by, not repelled by. You know, our philosophy has always been that Christian media shouldn't just meet industry standards, not Christian media industry standards, but industry standards. It shouldn't just meet them. It should exceed them because we've got the greatest story in human history. And so as we were thinking through how do we reach the masses with a different level of engagement around the Bible. How do we help them to experience the Bible the way the Bible was intended to be experienced and to do it in a way where they lean in when they see it and not are repelled by it? So we've actually partnered with a six-time Emmy Award-winning production studio called Evolve Studios. They do top programming for ESPN, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, Netflix. Um, The owners, leaders are all passionate followers of Jesus. And we're actually the first Christian project that they've taken on because they only do the best work. And so collectively, we are creating this docu-series style where 
I serve as the host and take the audience on this worldwide adventure to uncover these pieces of context related to the Bible in order to fit into whatever, you know, that season's theme is. And so season one is all in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's something that everybody knows, whether they're, you know, religious or not. And each episode, seven episodes in season one, just goes through each phrase. So the episode, Kyle, that you saw was just Our Father. And we're taking people to Israel. We're taking them to Egypt. We're taking them, you know, as well as to Jordan and the rest of the season and some other places around the world to help them experience the Bible and, and to be able to get themselves, what was it like to be on the Mount of Beatitudes 2,000 years ago, hearing Jesus give this prayer that he wanted his disciples to say on a daily basis. And so we've, we've been working on this um, since COVID began. The first episode, as you saw, is, is done and is available. And we're right now um, the rest of season one is written. We're in the middle of the fundraising process in order to get the rest of the season funding funded. And then God willing, uh, towards the end of 2023, we will be filming the rest of season one for God willing, a release in 2024. Okay. So assuming all things go well, that's what we're going to look at it as. But the, the very next thing that people want to know, because we're now in this era of everybody signed up for every subscription service during COVID because they were yeah. bored. And now they're right. like, okay, we're going to get rid of this one. And I literally signed up for this to watch one show and I've been paying 10 bucks a month for it ever since. And I haven't watched a dang thing. So do we have an idea of where it's going to be? Like what it's going to be on is, is it going to be like a, a pay to play type thing? Is it going to be similar to the chosen to where it's like, no, it's completely crowdfunded. You just have to download the app. Like where does it look like it's going to land for now? Yeah. So, well, through our relationship with Evolve, we're already slated for Amazon Prime, Apple TV, um, Google, and then we are going to be having conversations with some of the really big distributors. Um, so the U.S. distribution side is still a very much work in process. The global side is actually starting to crystallize, um, you know, as you and I are having this conversation we're going to be translating it into the top 15 world languages. And we've got dozens of distribution partners who will be distributing this around the world. So we are working on a couple of different distribution models for the United States. And as we start to get those, you know, more crystallized and as we get closer, you know, to releasing, which we have, we have some time because it probably won't be until the, the mid or end of 2024, before this will be available everywhere, um, you know, we'll have a, a better idea of how we're going to be distributing it. But the goal is maximum exposure. You know, this is one of the things where we are a nonprofit organization. This is not a for-profit venture. This is non-for-profit. We're doing all of the fundraising um, by ourselves. We're not going to be striking, you know, distribution deals where other people get creative control. We don't want the message getting watered down. We want to be able to do the work of bringing all of the funding to the table, have all of the rights to be able to do with it exactly what we feel like is going to be able to reach as many people. So a commercial distribution would be along the lines of being able to allow the commercial distributor to also help market this in order to get it to the masses. So for many people, they may look and go, well, if you make it completely free, it'll get to more people. Well, 
Yes and no. Depends on where we're at. Depends on the market. Depends on a number of things that we're working through right now. We're headlong in those conversations right now, but we haven't gotten that sorted out yet. But it will be, it will be available, you know, everywhere. Well, Brad, what if I were to tell you that I'm very impatient? I don't want to wait until 2024 to see the rest of them. What do you got to say to that? <laughs> we got to shoot them first. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, yeah. as soon as they're shot, if you need somebody to take a look at them and give you some pointers Absolutely, or give you my opinion, man. yeah, shoot well, it my way. Yeah, no, that's actually been a fun part of the process. And this is for anybody who's done any kind of significant media projects, you know, the pilot episode, which is our episode one, in fact, based on what we have learned from the pilot episode and what you saw, we're going to reshoot about 20% of it. And that's sometimes people reshoot the pilot. We feel like we nailed most of it, but based on what we're doing for the rest of the season and what we learned going through that, that pilot process, um, we'll be tweaking it slightly and reshooting some of the things that we felt like we could even make stronger. Um, you know, one of the fun things about, you know, going through this process is that, you know, you don't know what you don't know until, you get there and then you're able to sharpen that up. And so really excited about that. Um, but for now, I mean, people, and I know that you'll be posting this in the, in the show notes as well as people can go to the sacred thread.tv or.com or.org. We got them all. <laughs> it's going to take you all to the same place. You can watch the trailer. And then because we, um, you know, are in the midst of conversations for the distribution, the first episode can't be quote unquote totally forward facing. So people on the sacredthread.tv put in their own email address, they put in their own, you know, password and they get into the private page on the site where they can watch the episode. There's now a vision video that's there and it's some behind the scenes stuff for people to get a sense for what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it. But people can people can get after the first episode right now. Well, and it's certainly worth your time. And for those of you with families, I think it's important as well. Like there are a lot of things right now that you have to be wary of sitting down and watching as a family or just letting your kids watch it because you have no idea. Oh, is there going to be, you know, a drag queen that what's going to walk through the screen or is someone going to talk about how your kid is evil just because of the level of melanin they were born with? You're not going to have to worry about that with this series. So I really appreciate you going into all that detail in the, on the sacred thread and also walking the text. But before we get you out of here, there's a couple of other things that I want to talk to you about. Uh, and we may just end up talking about one of them depending on time because we could have talked about these things the entire time, but I'm just kind of tossing them here at the end. One thing that I talk about a lot and that we talk a lot about on this show is masculinity inside the church, or maybe more appropriately talking about the lack thereof. And so you have seen the church from multiple different angles, pastor, teaching pastor, kind of a parachurch ministry, which is kind of what you're right. doing now. Yeah, exactly. But one of the things that I've seen and I tell people this all the time because it always comes up when I'm interviewed on podcasts. I became a Christian as a 10th grader. So at, right at the time that I'm learning what it means to be a man, I was now trying to learn what it means to be a Christian. And I always saw those two things as oil and water, that all the manly men were outside the church doing the man stuff and all the, you know, good godly men were inside the church, you know, shaking each other's hands and uh, telling them they'd pray for him and doing all these other different things. Uh, but it was always this dichotomy to me that you couldn't be masculine, you couldn't be manly and also be a part of the church. And so from what you've seen, what do you see as the overall, um, I guess, state of masculinity in the church as of right now? Yeah. You know, it depends on where you're at. You know, I mean, there's obviously different churches are doing things, you know, differently. You know, I'm part of a congregation where, you know, they're looking at 
the gathering together on a Sunday is, is how do we make this, and I don't mean this in a negative way, how does this become as, as, as inclusive as possible? I mean, it, all these different people are coming together, young, old, you know, wealthy, not as wealthy. There's a whole, you know, stretch of, hey, there's a lot of different types of people that are showing up. How do we create an experience that is going to be faithful to the text, that is going to be worshipful in nature, that's going to be done well, not as an idol of excellence, but as a way of reflecting, you know, who we believe God is and the privilege that we get to join in. And how do we allow throughout a service and even throughout, you know, a teaching series, how are we speaking to the various different groups about who they are and what they should be doing and, and what is biblically true? And then outside of that, there's a lot of other events that people are creating, you know, so there was recently an ax throwing event, you know, at our church, you know, so it was a way to get everybody together. It's bonfires. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a men's event. It's an opportunity to talk about, you know, doing something fun like that, as well as talking about, you know, what does it mean to, to serve well? So I do think that it's across the spectrum and you may actually have even a, a better, you know, understanding as, as far as that with, you know, your audience and the vast number of types of people that you're running, you know, circles with. Here's as far as for me, you know, I am raising, I've got four kids, I've got three boys. And, you know, so this idea of just, you know, masculine, masculinity, uh, sexuality, you know, gender, all this stuff that is happening. My kids go to public school, you know, so we're having these conversations a lot. And one of the things that for me on my own journey of understanding kind of Christianity and masculinity and strength and fitness and kind of how all this gets brought together is my, my dad was actually an amazing example you know, of this. My dad is one of the toughest guys that I know. I mean, he's, he's done everything. He's got, you know, 13 surgeries to, to show it and to prove it. But one of the things that I just remember even growing up is that my dad always said to me, I believe that Jesus was the, was, was the toughest man that you would have ever met, but he never used his position to benefit himself, he always used that strength and that influence and that voice in order to help those who needed it the most. And so, I mean, my dad was the assistant coach for, for basketball. I mean, I, I had just amazing coaches growing up. And I just remember my dad saying, I'm willing to bet that Jesus probably would have ran through a few screens, knocked the dude on his butt, and as soon as the play ended, would have gone and then picked him up. But then the very next play would have probably ran them over again, you know, and, it, and there's always this sense of, oh, we have to be soft. I mean, so many of our images of Jesus is this Western European, six foot tall, long, blonde hair, blue eye, pasty white, 135 pounds, six foot guy. I mean, just almost like a weakling. And I just and this is something, too, is having lived in the Middle East, living alongside of you know, the Jewish people and the Palestinian people and just seeing how rough and tough everybody is. Like, it's a very different picture of what I think Jesus would have been. But I think that part of biblical masculinity is living into who God has has created you to be. I mean, there's a whole other steward fitness work outside of it that I know that, you know, it, you're big with and I'm too. I mean, I work out six times 
a week. I, you know, I watch what I eat. I want to be fit and for my kids and energetic and to be able to do everything, you know, God invites me to do. But for me, it's how do you live into who God has created you to be, to be the best steward of, of, of what God has given you, but then to always take the advantage that you have, whether it is influence, whether it is leadership, whatever that is, how do you serve well that the toughest people that I know are the ones who could demand respect, not command respect, but demand respect. And yet they're constantly looking for ways to make somebody else bigger. You know, to me, that is something that we, 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 we don't tell men to shy away from what you have. It's how are you leveraging it? Not for your benefit, but for the benefit of somebody else. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Paul's doing that as well. I mean, that's that's one of the things. I'll tell you one quick story, and then I'll, I'll let you talk now. There's my there's my full monologue for the last several minutes. There you go. Is that when I take people, when I take people to Turkey, we have an experience where they don't know we're only going to go one mile, but we're going uphill, man. I mean, it is a mountain. It is rocky. You have to look every single step. And I, on this particular hike. I move quickly. I mean, people are moving. They don't know how long it's going to be. Again, I don't. That, they don't get an itinerary. And when we get to the point where we've only gone a mile and they don't even know it, we stop. And I start recounting Paul's missionary journeys. The number of miles he walked, the number of miles that he sailed, and we get done. And dude, in his, that we can actually track it's just under 10,000 miles that he walked and that he sailed. And we're walking on a Roman road path. I mean, we're right next to it. And I just mm. sit and I, and, I, and I give them the number of Paul, the number of miles that, that we have. And then I just say, and you just went one mile. Tell me these people weren't tough. Tell me these per people didn't, you know, I mean, they were, <laughs> they got after it. But their entire life was, but how am I leveraging that for the benefit of someone else? You know, I mean, it's it's the tip. I don't want to say typical because then it downplays it, but it's the servant leadership. I mean, it's the greatest leaders are the ones who are leading for the benefit of other people. And, you know, to me, that conversation around fat faith and, and, and masculinity, like that was a different experience because I grew up with tough men. I mean, and not like tough, like in the abusive sense. I mean, my... My dad was a tri triathlete. My dad's, you know, had was was a college athlete. He was in the fitness industry. I mean, I'm around professional athletes. I'm around the best athletes in the world, and yet, like, I'm learning what does this mean to take what God has given you and use it for the benefit of others. So you're describing the dichotomy that is Jesus, where he is lamb and lion. Yeah, he is grace and truth. Yeah, he is tough and tender. Yeah, the problem is is most modern ministries and most modern churches and most modern worship songs and most modern depictions of Jesus. It is grace. It is lamb and right. it is tender. And so yep. part of what, what we do is we're like, Hey, we always sign off with keep seeking the lion of Judah. And some people here to the detriment of the lamb of God. I'm like, no, 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 no. You got the lamb of God. You got it. Because yep. when I go and speak to groups of men, I say, raise your hand if in the last year your pastor has mentioned Lamb of God. Every hand goes up without fail. And then I say, 
raise your hand if they've mentioned Lion of Judah, and it's a smattering of hands here and there. There's sure. a reason for that. Yep. The lamb is easy to understand. The lion is difficult to understand. Uh, it's easy to understand grace, but the truth kind of makes us feel icky and judgmental and mean. But then it also gets back to what we hear in our head whenever someone says the word meek, right? And I talk about this all the time, but we hear meek and we think weak, navel gazing, like, you know, go along, yeah. get along. But meekness is when you have the full use of your power, but you have it under voluntary control. And in a Christian context is you have full use of your power and God. God's gifting to his glory and right. for him to unleash when he decides, not when you decide. And so I take this all back to the church example, because you talked about your church being inclusive and, and I know you don't mean that in kind of the modern purple head nose ring version, but exactly. uh, yeah. the thing about it is whenever I read through the new Testament, I'm certainly open to be corrected on this. And I know we don't have all day because uh, we're winding to a close, but the church is for Christians. So I don't understand the seeker-sensitive model of churches where they try to acquiesce to the lowest common denominator while right. ignoring the people that are there and will be there regardless. And so it's like we're trying to make sure this is comfortable enough for that random person coming off the street because we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable to the detriment of making the rest of your congregation feel uncomfortable because you're only giving them milk. Week after week, you're giving them milk, and it's not nourishing them anymore. And sometimes the milk turns into Skittles. You give them their spiritual Skittles and they, they get their little high, they, they raise their hands during the worship and then they leave and they're back to their normal life. So I bring it back around to something. The, the lion of the faith, Vodi Bakum, he's, he's one of my favorites. He wrote a book called Family Shepherds. Most people don't know about this book and they haven't read it. But if I were to summarize this book, it would be that men are the main driving force outside of God and the triune God of catechizing their family and discipling their family. And so if you as a church make your church man-friendly, Notice how I didn't say do men's ministry. Notice how I didn't say do men's events. Notice how I didn't say men's Bible study. But if you make your church from top to bottom, from the sermon content, the, the music to the missions, man-friendly, that will be to the redounding benefit of all the women and all the children, all the widows, all the orphans in the congregation. Because if the men take discipleship seriously, don't you think they're going to take their marriages seriously? Don't you think they're going to take the catechizing of their children and the ways of God seriously? And so again, most churches look out and they see a bunch of female and young faces and they think that's my target audience. Again, you and I have a sales background. We understand you have to market to your audience, but are we marketing to the audience that is there or should we be developing programs that will shift the market to be a more appropriate thing? As in, there is an order to society. There's an order to creation. And when we start marketing to a disruption of that order, that's a massive problem. So I just want to get your final thoughts on that before we wrap up here. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I really appreciate about what you just said there is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a man, so I'm just going to speak to the men. And I know that obviously that's what you are as well. We are called to step up. Mm -hmm. You know, we are called to take responsibility to, you know, raise our kids in a way that is honoring to what God would want and to be able to not just say, well, I've, I'm doing the work. And so therefore, if my wife is home, you know, she's kind of covering the household. You know, my wife and I, you know, I she does she's a part time, but I'm obviously full time. But we look at parenting our kids as a joint partnership. And it's not just, well, honey, you're kind of handling the things in the home. I'm kind of handling things by way of work. It's no, how are we working together? But my responsibility, and this is, you know, this could be another 
totally other theological discussion, you know, at another day is that, you know, I'm, I'm part of a, of a church that, you know, there are women leaders, there are women that are allowed to be in leadership. And again, that can be another discussion for another day. But for me, the way I read the biblical story is that my wife and I are both responsible for our marriage. We are both responsible for our kids. We're both both responsible for their development. But at the end of the day, I am more responsible. I am going to have to give a greater accounting for what happened within my family as, you know, the head of the household. And the way that Paul is talking about that in Ephesians 5 is, you know, he's he's saying, yes, as the head of the household, you should be the very first one, be the first one to serve. You're the very first one getting on your knee. You're the very first one making sure that everybody else has what they need, that it's not about lordship as it is about servanthood. Jesus is ultimately the Lord of the house. We submit to the rule and reign of Jesus in the house. But the way that I understand what Paul is doing in Colossians chapter three and what he is doing in Ephesians chapter five is that as the man of my household, I have greater responsibility. It doesn't make me more important. It doesn't, you know, it means that at the end of the day, Jesus is going, if, if, if something is not, did not go right in my household, Yes, my wife was part of it. Yes, we collaborated on it. I mean, we we worked through everything together. That's part of our, how we run a house. I am the one who's ultimately going to be more responsible. And so for men to be able to, to recognize, let's stop pawning it off. Let's stop pawning it off to the church. Let's stop pawning it off to you know our spouses. Let's stop pawning off if our kids are at a Christian school. It's what are we doing in order to raise our kids the way that we believe that we're called to do. And, and that's one of the fascinating things about even Jewish education and, and the world that Jesus would have grown up in. The responsibility was first and foremost in the home. And then it went to the synagogue. Then it went to, you know, the other places. And so we need, we, we need to do that. And we need, and this is one of the things that I really appreciate about, you know, the church that, that I'm part of and I serve on the church, on the teaching team is that I've, I've rarely seen a place that is grace and truth as much as where we're at and where, you know, our pastor does a really great job of getting down to brass tacks with whatever thing we're talking about. And when it's a, a sermon where it's specifically talking about men, we need to step up. Like, I mean, it is very direct men. Here's what we need to be doing and not in a shaming way, but in a let's paint the vision of what happens when this actually happens in our household. What happens in our community? What happens in our church when we make these changes? Here's the downstream effect. And people are, you know, compelled into a biblical vision for how we're supposed to live in order for God's will and God's way to advance here on earth, you know, as it is in heaven. Well, you kind of gave a little caveat to using the word shame, but I think shame is one of the most tremendous motivators for people because I was very overweight as a kid. And I remember the shame of taking my shirt off at a pool party and having kids make fun of me. And that, you know, you could look at that. Oh, you've been damaged. You've been whatever. It's like, no, no, no. That is driving me to a life of fitness and taking care of myself, which is going to cascade into, because I have two boys, to them seeing a dad that is in shape, to seeing a dad that is healthy. And that will be to their benefit as well. But the next time we have you on here, we're going to yell at each other about women serving leadership, egalitarian versus complementarian. We're going to get into all the areas that'll get us canceled, but we've covered a lot of ground today. I really appreciate all your time, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? 
No, man, this has just been a great, great conversation. And one of the things that I appreciate about just, you know, what you do is, you know, we can, we can have discussions, we can have dialogues. There's, you know, a mutual respect and this has been a really fun podcast to be able to do. So appreciate it. Brad Gray, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you, Kyle. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Brad Gray. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the three links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Walking the Text website, the website for the Sacred Thread, and then something we didn't talk about specifically on this podcast. But he does have a book out called Make Your Mark, Getting Right What Samson Got Wrong. So there's a link to where you can pick that up there. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah